Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 1. That's my line. <laughs> I took it. Yeah. Would you welcome John Muth to the stage, please? John and his wife, Kristen, have been with us all weekend. This is their interview weekend to see if they're going to come and join our team as the new associate minister here. And so we've had a, a great time with our staff and with our elders and them seeing our community and seeing if this is going to be called home for them. So thank you for praying for this weekend. We've had a, a great time and looking forward to the chance to open up God's Word with you together. Daniel chapter 1, we'll get there here in just a second. The early church father, Augustine, who was a North African bishop, wrote one of the most famous and foundational philosophy books in history. It's called The City of God, and he wrote it in the early 5th century in response to allegations that came against Christians that Christianity was the cause of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Well, in the book, Augustine describes what he calls the earthly city, which many have called the city of man. The earthly city is the world that you and I live in. It is the world of nations and politics and war and power, the earthly city. In the book, he contrasts the earthly city with the city of God, which is where the title comes from. It's heaven. It is God's city, his eternal kingdom, that finally and ultimately is going to win the day. And God's people, though they live in the earthly city, are to be ultimately consumed by and concerned with the city of God, which is quite a relevant truth for us to ponder in an election year. Uh, during an election year, though I, I think some of you do it all the time, uh, but during an election year in particular, and especially as we move closer and closer to November the 3rd, the tendency that we have is to look for answers and to look for hope to the right or to the left. If you like what's happened the last four years, we continue to look to the right and say that that's where our, our help is coming from. We're going to, we need that. Or if you think the last four years were terrible and what we need now is a change, you look to the left for some answers and for some hope. Friends, can we acknowledge that, that never works out like we hope it's going to work out? Not one time has that ever happened. Salvation is not flying in on Air Force One. It never has been and it never will. So, we go to the Old Testament prophet of Daniel. When we are tempted to look to the right or look to the left, Daniel instructs us to look up. He will give us a vision of God, a, a high view of God, a God who is all-knowing, a God who is all-powerful, a God who is fully self-sufficient, and a God who is absolutely sovereign over the earthly city. He shows us a God who is far above and beyond anything that mankind could ever hope to be. And he will chronicle for us six distinct events and four visions of the future in his great book. But all of it is designed to show that the city of God rules over all. So let's go to the text. Daniel chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So let's set the historical scene. The year is 606 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has become the reigning superpower in the world. And he's ultimately going to siege uh, Jerusalem three times to defeat the kingdom of Judah. Uh, the one we're most familiar with is his third and final siege in 586 B.C., where he obliterates Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And you can read more about that uh, in the book of Lamentations in your Bible. But this siege is in 606 B.C., and it's his first attack. And with it, he carts off members of the royal family and nobility. And this was part of a warfare strategy. You take the best and the brightest away from a nation, and then you take away its hope of recovery. You take away hope from the people. But before we get uh, to Daniel and his friends, let's look at a couple of critical details that alert us uh, to what God wants to teach us in Daniel. And I would submit to you that the, the critical verse in Daniel uh, that, that sets us on the correct path of understanding what it's really all about is, is verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we're introduced to, to two truths here. The first one, this is a battle of the gods. Uh, the primary issue is not that, that Nebuchadnezzar carted off Daniel and his friends, but that he carted off the vessels of worship from the temple. I mean, these were sacred things to the people of Israel. He ransacked God's house, and he defiled it. And then to add insult to injury, uh, those vessels of worship, he didn't just take them, but he placed them in his own pagan temples of his gods back in Babylon. So this isn't just about Nebuchadnezzar defeating uh, King Jehoiakim of Judah. This is about Nebuchadnezzar believing that his god has defeated the God of Israel. And that's what Daniel's all, Daniel's all about, uh, especially the first six chapters. Uh, this book is designed to demonstrate the superiority of, of our God over the pagan gods of Babylon. And, and we'll see, uh, well, you'll see in the next several weeks that, that each of the first six chapters, they in, include both those very subtle and some obvious acknowledgments that the God of Israel is superior over all other gods. So it's the battle of the gods. The second truth that verse 2 introduces us to is the sheer evil of what Babylon represents. So anywhere in the Bible, whenever Babylon is mentioned, it's always bad. Babylon is never good. And chapter 1, verse 2 uses a very specific word that helps us to understand the evil origins of Babylon. It uses the word Shinar. That's where he takes the vessels back to Shinar. Well, Shinar takes us back to the book of Genesis, uh, so after the flood in Genesis 6, uh, the population of humanity begins to increase. And as it does, their level of wickedness and evil also increases. By the time we get to Genesis 11, here's what happens. Chapter 11, verse 1. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this tower that they are building is to represent mankind's prominence over all the earth. It is to reach into the heavens to tell God, you are not the only one who dwells here. We can dwell with you in this place. God, we're on the same level as you are. Except that's never true. And what they feared that they would be dispersed over the earth is exactly what God does to them. He scatters them all over the earth and he names the tower Babel. So this place in the land of Shinar, this tower of Babel, is the origin of ancient Babylon. This is where the name comes from. So this is their home. So from that beginning of we're a big deal and going to make a name for ourselves, all the way through its evil reign under men like Nebuchadnezzar, all the way to the end of the Bible where the whore of Babylon represents a, a pagan world in all of its systems, there is always a battle between God and Babylon. There is always a battle between God's people and Babylon. So enter Daniel and his friends. They are the cream of the crop. They are likely from the royal family because we're told they're from the tribe of Judah. That's the, the tribe of kings. So they are, verse 4, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So these are upper class, good-looking, high IQ, letter in every sport, ace every class kind of kids. That's who, man, if the shoe fits. Um, <laughs> that's who these, these guys are. These boys are likely around 16 years old when this happens and they're carted off to Babylon, which is remarkable that boys at such a young age will do what they are about to do. These men will live their entire adult lives as exiles in a foreign land. They will live for the rest of their lives under the control of a foreign evil military power. These men will fight the battle with Babylon over and over and over again. And friends, it's the same battle that you and I fight today. You and I live in Babylon. We live in the earthly city. We live in a larger culture that actively rebels and fights against the Lord. We are exiles from our true home, heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, the battle that you and I are in against Babylon is not a military battle. It's a battle of the soul. So for the next few minutes, I just want you to, you to put yourself in Daniel's shoes. We'll do that a lot over the next number of weeks. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes and see that what Daniel is enduring is the same thing that you and I are enduring. You are a godly person that's forced to live in an increasingly ungodly culture. Your God is being increasingly maligned and ignored, and it seems like the world is winning. Your faith is legal, and it is tolerated 
as long as your faith does not influence or impact public life. And if it does influence and impact public life, it is shut down as quickly as possible. There is tremendous pressure on you to conform, to go along so that you can get along. So let's see for a few minutes the pressure that they were under. It's the same pressure that we're under. So number one is the, the pressure to change your logic. So if you look at the end of verse 4, it says, Teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. These, these boys had grown up with godly parents of faith. Uh, they've been educated at the temple with the scriptures. And their, world, their worldview and way of thinking was, was dominated by God's truth. So what is Babylon's goal? It's to take them out of that way of thinking and re-educate them. History tells us that the, the Babylonian or the, the Chaldean culture their curriculum included teaching on nature, writing, a new vocabulary, religion, law, business, economics, government, astrology, and even more. That's quite the class load, but even more than that. Uh, their goal was to indoctrinate these new exiles and force them to think in a whole new way. It's as if they were saying, and maybe this sounds familiar, this is really how religion should work. This is really how a government should be run. This is what these words actually mean. You've just been wrong your entire life, uh, and you just didn't know it. Uh, congratulations, you can now be enlightened by the glorious truth of Babylon. So don't be so naive as to think that this is not exactly the very thing that's happening to you and to me in our culture today. Our way of thinking, guided by the truth of Scripture and rooted in the, in the resurrection of Jesus, is now archaic and bigoted, were supposedly on the wrong side of history. Babylon's logic was defined by what we would call humanism. It's a pagan concept that puts mankind at the center of everything. And this is modeled by Nebuchadnezzar later in Daniel in chapter 4. It says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And I think we see this humanism in our, in our culture today by the prevalence of belief in Darwinian evolution. Uh, you know, when you, when you want to put mankind at the center, you have to remove God, you have to remove a creator from, from that rightful place. So you just dismiss him and his word, uh, you add billions of years, and, and voila, you have a world where man is the critical centerpiece of everything. And if there's even a whisper of biblical truth or of discussion about God being creator, uh, it's immediately dismissed. And, and even mocked. Uh, but I want to tell you today, that's okay. You know, we, we don't work to be on the right side of history. Uh, we work to be on the right side of eternity. History is judged by Bam Babylon, but eternity is judged by God. You've got the pressure to change your logic. Number two, you have the pressure to change your lifestyle. Look back at verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So not only did Daniel and his friends have a way of thinking that was guided by the truth of Scripture, their entire way of life was guided by the truth of Scripture. Now, if we assume that Daniel is 16 years old at the time, that puts his birth year in 622 B.C., well, 622 B.C. was a very big year in the kingdom of Judah. That year, the king was a young man named Josiah. Josiah had come into power when he was eight years old as king over Judah. 
So 10 years later, at the age of 18 in 622 B.C., uh, they, they decide things need to change in the land. They have not been worshiping God. The nation has been worshiping pagan idols. And they decide this hasn't worked out like we wanted it to. We need to get back to faithfulness to the Lord. So they go into the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that has been uh, broken down and misused and unused for years and years and years, and they start renovating the temple. Well, when they do, they discover a copy of the Old Testament law. They had lost it because they didn't bother reading it. They didn't care what God wanted for his people. So they find the copy of the law, and they realize this is what God wants from us. This is God's will for his people. So they go out in public, and they read God's law to the people, and revival breaks out. The whole nation is transformed. Their lives are transformed by God's word. That's the year that Daniel is born. So Daniel's entire life up to this moment in Daniel 1 has, has been lived in this scripture-saturated reality. So when these good Jewish boys who know nothing but God's kosher food laws in the Old Testament are standing in Babylon and are instructed by the reigning superpower in the world, this is what you're going to eat and this is what you're going to drink, they have a crisis of conscience. What are they going to do? This is non-kosher Gentile pagan food that's been sacrificed to pagan false gods. This is from the king's table, our number one nemesis and enemy. What are we going to do? And, and we'll see Daniel's response next week of, of what he does in that moment. But we look at this and we would think, eh, the food thing's not really a big deal because it's not a big deal to us. We're so far removed from that. We like ham and bacon sandwiches. We like to eat shrimp, all the things that they couldn't eat. We like those things. So it's not really a big deal. No, I'm hungry. Well, you know, it's, it's coming up on lunchtime. This was a huge deal for them, huge, because for them to eat this food is disobedience to God's direct commands. They're going to defile themselves, and, and they're going to dishonor the God who's done so much for them. And, and the way that it will work out is this. Faithfulness in the little things typically equals faithfulness in the big things. And unfaithfulness in the little things typically equals unfaithfulness in the big things. Friends, a, a pagan culture is designed to change the way you live. Your values, your opinions, your way of life, they're all wrong. You just didn't know it, but our, our world is happy to tell you that you were wrong. You can now be enlightened by being instructed by our world to a new and better way of life. And I think this is very clearly seen in the world's views towards a biblical sexual ethic. The, the the biblical views on sex and on marriage and on gender are openly mocked and discarded as irrelevant to such an enlightened culture such as ours. And let me tell you why that is. Because if you follow God's ways, you don't get to do whatever you want. So there's a pressure to change your logic, your lifestyle. And number three is a pressure to change uh, your loyalty. Notice in verses 6 and 7, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. In the Bible, names equal character. Names 
equal identity. And this is one of the reasons uh, that God frequently changed people's names. Uh, it helped identify them more accurately. That's exactly what's happening here. All four of these guys had God in their name. It was, it was part of their identity. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. But Babylon stripped their God-saturated identity away from them. They changed Daniel's name to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect. It's a shorthand name for Marduk, not Marmaduke. Marduk, remember that. Shadrach, uh, command of Aku. Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Abednego, servant of, of Nabo. And all those are, are pagan gods of, of Babylon. Our world is designed to strip away your loyalty to God and get you to become loyal to their own false gods. Uh, whether it be secular humanism, a more popular uh, faith, or, or just away from faithfulness uh, to Jesus, or this attitude that says, you know, you, you do you. Um, or maybe it's strict adherence to false gods like comfort or success or, or wealth. The New Testament and our Bible speaks to this quite a bit, and here's just a few examples. In James 4, uh, James writes, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friends of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's this pressure that you and I are under every single day of our lives to change our logic, change our lifestyle, change our loyalties. You are at war. It may not feel like that at times, but make no mistake about it, you are at war with Babylon. The spirit of the age fights against. But, but you need to know this war is nothing new. Um, God's people have been fighting against Babylon since the very beginning. And according to the book of Revelation, we'll be fighting against Babylon all the way till Jesus returns to the end of our days. This battle never stops. So what do we do in the fight? We never give up and we never give in. We fight every single day. And here's why we do that. So just like Joseph, who lived a thousand years before Daniel, all the way back to the book of Genesis, Joseph, who's an exile in ancient Egypt, as Joseph learned this lesson, as Esther, who lives a hundred years after Daniel, uh, under as an exile in the Persian Empire, it's the Persians who defeat the Babylonians later on in the book of Daniel. Just as Joseph learned, just as Esther will learn, Daniel will learn, as will we, that God ultimately rules over the earthly city and that the city of God is our hope and the city of God is our future. So today, we fight the good fight. Now, in a minute, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion together. But before we do, let me make a very simple, very quick, yet very critical point. As we talk about the earthly city versus the city of God, you know, we, we live in the earthly city. No one is naturally born into the city of God. All of us are naturally born into the earthly city. 
If you want to get into the city of God, you have to be born again. That's what Jesus teaches in John chapter 3. He told a guy named Nicodemus, an early religious leader, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. We repent of sin and turn to Jesus. We confess Jesus as Lord. We unite with Jesus as we're immersed in the waters of baptism. We are to be born again into the city of God, into a, a world, into a reality that is defined by the hope of eternity. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the reality of the city of God, that you did not leave us in the earthly city but you call us out of that place into citizenship, into your kingdom. As the uh, book of Colossians says, you've pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your dear son. We're so grateful for that. So as we, as we live in the earthly city and long for the city of God, help us to fight well, to be faithful to you in the midst of all the circumstances that we're in because that's your will for us in this place. So God, as we live as exiles with this pressure on us to conform, God, make us faithful. And for the next few moments, we take a little piece of bread and a cup of juice and with them we remind ourselves of the faithfulness of Jesus who in the midst of a, a sinful world did not waver in his trust in you, went to the cross to be a sacrifice as our substitute to stand in our place. And we take a piece of bread to be reminded of the body of Jesus sacrificed for us. We take a cup of juice to be reminded of the blood of Jesus that was spilled to forgive sinners like us. So thank you for Jesus and his work on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.